0: Good to see everybody here this morning. I hate to start off with an apology, but I've got this congestion throat, whatever that stuff is. And uh, so uh, the good news is, is, is Daryl, I think I was singing bass with you this morning, you know, one of one, one of the few times. I know that the only thing worse than trying to speak with this kind of voice is you trying to listen to it, so... I just ask you to to bear with us, but we have been in for the last several weeks. The book of Hebrews Talking about this letter that was written to a group of people who needed encouragement uh, Some of them had already given up turned back to their former way of life Specifically going back to their Jewish traditions Jewish religion Some of them were on the verge of doing that and so the writer pleads with them not to give up not to quit And he encourages them to encourage each other. And that is what we have been talking about in our key verse coming from chapter 3, 13 and 14. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at first. And so all throughout this letter, he puts the responsibility of Helping one another on each other he says encourage one another encourage one another help each other all the more as you see the day approaching and he also gives us he, he tries to encourage his readers by telling them how much better they have it in Christ how much better their Christianity was in the old law. Now, he wasn't downgrading the old law. He wasn't saying there was anything wrong with it. You know, he he goes through and he says that the new law is better than the old law. The the sacrifice of Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the prophets. All these different things. Now, he's not saying that those things were, were bad. He's just saying, look how much greater, superior... Better they are in Christ. You know, the Old Testament sacrifices, they served a purpose. They helped. I remember the old-timey preachers talking about how they just kind of pushed the sins down the road a little bit. Well, that was okay. Jesus came and offered a sacrifice that wiped them out for all. The prophets were good in telling God's word, but Jesus was God. And his words were even greater by far. And so we've been looking at this and so this morning I want you to think about what do you feel like when people have expectations of you? Now one of the classics in literature is entitled Great Expectations. I'm gonna disappoint all you English people. I'm sorry. I don't even know who wrote it, okay? I have no idea what the book is about. But I know Great Expectations is a classic. You should read it. I probably read the Cliff Notes at some point. But I don't know what the book is about. But I understand the idea of people having expectations of you. And maybe in your life, you've let people down. Maybe it was your parents, maybe it was teachers, maybe it was coaches, maybe it was employees or employers or whatever the case may be. But you know, whenever we enter a relationship of any kind, there are always expectations. This is what I think I'm going to get out of this. This is what I think should happen in this relationship. And we've talked before About what happens when people have expectations of God. When they enter this relationship with him. And then those things don't work out. The way that they thought they would. And some of those are the very people to whom the writer is writing. But this morning I want us to look at the idea of what God expects from us. So if you have your Bibles turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 12. Therefore, he says, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity or maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and God permitting, we will do so. Now that really goes back to what we talked about last week about maturing in Christ and that we're to grow. Verse four. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because of their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often... Falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed in the end will be burned. And even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. I wanted to look at that verse nine. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. God is confident of you. God has placed his confidence in you. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But we do want to look at these verses 4 through 8. Because for many they present a problem. Because it says it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. And if you skip through all the commas and the little phrases. Verse 6 or start at verse 4, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, go down to verse 6, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. And that troubles a lot of people. That worries folks. What does that mean that it is impossible to bring them back to repentance? I actually spoke with somebody just within the last couple weeks. Who wanted to know if they had fallen into this category. Had they fallen so far away from God? Had they gotten so far away from God that they could never come back? Well, I believe that anybody who is wondering whether or not they can come back to God. Can come back to God. We'll talk in a minute about what I think that this means. Now, I do think that there is the suggestion here, more than the suggestion, that it is possible to having once been enlightened, having once shared in all these things that it talks about, that you can fall away and lose your salvation. Now, there are many out there in the religious world who would teach something different. Who would teach the idea that once you are saved. Once you become a truly committed child of God. That there is nothing you can do. No matter how far you stray away. There is nothing you can do to lose that salvation. But to me there are way too many scriptures. That teach the exact opposite. For example. This very passage we're talking about. Shows that that is an opportunity. Look also at the very end of what we just read. In verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. In order to make your hope sure. There's an implication I think there. That if you don't hang on to the very end, your hope is not sure. Over in First Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Peter writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. And you want to know how you make your calling and election sure? Well, you don't have to wonder. He goes on to tell you in the same verse. For if you do these things, you will never fall. The things being the things that he talked about earlier in the chapter. Again, the reverse implication is clear. If you don't do these things, you will fall. And your calling and election is unsure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27... Paul writes about himself and he says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What? Paul, you mean to tell me that you were worried about the possibility of being disqualified for the prize? It's exactly what he said. He said, I've got to control myself every day. I got to keep myself in check every day so that after I've preached to everybody else, after I've preached the gospel and and many have heard and been saved because of what I've done, that I don't become disqualified for the prize. Now, I don't think what Paul is saying is, and I don't think what the New Testament teaches is. What I grew up understanding. I grew up what one of my professors, Jimmy Allen, called a basketball religion. You know, because you dribble a basketball, it goes up and down, 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 you know. I grew up believing, whether I was taught that way or whether I just got it. I think I was taught that way. But anyway, that we move in and out of salvation. As often as a ball gets dribbled up and down on the basketball court, I'm saved, I'm unsaved, I'm saved, I'm unsaved, I'm saved, I'm unsaved, I'm saved, I'm unsaved, I'm saved, I'm unsaved. unsaved. And boy, you better hope that when you go, you go in that saved state. Right. I grew up believing that, you know, if if. You'd live just the the most wonderful Christian godly life and all of a sudden you're driving along and this this impure thought goes through your mind and you crash into a tree and you're dead. Oh, you didn't have time to repent. You're going to hell. I know I'm not the only one who grew up that way. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. John 1, 1, John 1 and verse 7. If we are walking in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus continues to cleanse us of our sins. God's grace is magnificent. God's grace can cover anything. And I do not believe that 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 stepping at a line for an instant all of a sudden nullifies the salvation that we've been granted through grace. Now that does not mean that we can take advantage of that. And rebelliously and decidedly determine that you know what? I'm not going to do what God says. Tim said, God's grace will cover me. Well, forget what Tim said. You remember what Paul said? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. You better not think that way. If we are walking in the light as he is in the light. Can we be walking in in the right direction and stumble? Yeah. And get up and move on? Yeah. But what I do think the Bible clearly teaches is that if we stop in our walk with God. Or if we turn around and walk away from God. Then we are no longer walking in the light. And the blood of Jesus and the grace that is provided because of that no longer cleanses us from our sin. Second Peter chapter two, verse twenty through twenty two, Peter writes, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it, and are overcome, they are even worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and to have known it, and then turned their backs to the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. We can turn our backs on God. We can be disqualified for the prize. That's why in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament, there are all these warnings. If, if, if you hold on to the end. If you do these things. If you remain in me, then I will remain in you, Jesus said. I also believe besides just the the, the scriptural evidence, and I've told you this before, I believe there's a very practical element that suggests to me, not just suggests to me, but lets me know that once you're saved, you're not always saved. That Once you're saved, you can lose your salvation. And the practical element is, if once I'm saved, there was no way I could ever be lost. There was no way I could ever sin so as to lose my salvation. Then why does Satan keep spending so much time on me? Why? If he doesn't have any hope of getting my soul. If he doesn't have any hope. Of separating me from God. Why is he still messing with me? Why didn't he leave me alone? Because I think he knows there's still a possibility. Yeah, God has you now. But I can still get you. I can still get you. So that leads us to the. What about the impossibility thing? What does it mean for it is impossible to renew them again? to repentance. I don't think. The writer is talking about those who wandered away and realize and want to come back. There is nothing in the scriptures that suggests that you can actually go so far away from God that if you decide and realize and want to come back, it's too late. You've gone too far. I don't think the scriptures teach that. In fact, I believe that the parable of the prodigal son teaches exactly the opposite. The prodigal son had gone far away. About as far away as you could go. He had humiliated his father. He had cast a horrible name on the, on the family name. He was off doing all these kinds of things. And he comes back and the father takes him back. And remember the words that the father used. This son of mine was lost. And now he is found. He was dead. But now He is alive. I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is. That for those who turn away from God. And refuse to come back. And refuse to listen. And refuse to repent. And want to continue in their stubborn willful disobedience to God. Well there's no hope for them. I mean, where are you going to find a hope? How are those people going to be saved? They have turned their back on the one opportunity. I won't say opportunity. They've turned their back on the one cure for sin. And that's Jesus Christ. You know, we have that term. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, you know, we got that. If the doctor tells me, here is this cure for your disease. And I say, ain't going to take it. But you don't understand. This is the only cure. Nothing else out there will cure it. I'll give you an example y'all can relate to because you know me well. If I were to get some horrible, deadly disease. And the doctor told me the only cure in the world for that disease is a daily dose of Brussels sprouts. (laughs) And I would say, ain't gonna eat it. Nope, I'd just as soon die than eat them Brussels sprouts. Just forget it, my life would be miserable. The quality of my life from here on out would just be horrible. I don't want to do it. But it's the only cure. I don't care. I don't care. Then what, can, what more can you do? What, what else is there? And the writer here is saying, for those who turn their back on the sacrifice of Jesus and go back to living their way of life, not stumbling along the way, but go back to their way of life and refuse to come back. It's impossible. It's impossible for them to be saved. It's impossible for them to repent if they continue to give up on what the repentance is about, Jesus Christ. It's impossible, they says. But here's the good news. Spent way too much long time on the bad news. Here's the good news. God is confident of better things. You know, it's one thing for somebody to expect something of you. It's another thing for them to be confident you can do it, right? I've had people who kind of expected me to do things, but they really didn't think I could do it. Maybe you've been there. But God isn't just expecting us. He says here he is confident that we can do those things. What's he talking about? Well, the writer here, we're talking about things that that surround and concern salvation. Well, okay. You remember, we've talked before about when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Be ye perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. We've talked before. Come on. Jesus didn't really mean perfect as in perfect, right? And so we'll try to explain it away and we'll try to. I think Jesus meant perfect. Jesus didn't have a limited vocabulary. Jesus could have chosen any words he wanted to. But he said, be ye perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. And Peter over and over again quotes out of the Old Testament where God says, Be ye holy as I am holy. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You talk about great expectations. Those are some lofty goals. Those are some great expectations. But God says, I'm confident in you. Now, is he confident in me in and of myself? (laughs) No, 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 no. He's confident in me because he knows that he has given me the resources. He's given me the power. He's given me what I need to accomplish and to achieve those expectations that he has for me. So he talks about these different things about uh, what God expects. And one of them is fruitfulness. The idea that we would bear fruit uh, in, in the world around us. Whether that means like the fruit of the spirit, that'd be true. Whether it means other Christians. He talks about the crop that receives the rain. And that there ought to be fruitfulness expected from that. In our love for one another, he says. That ought to be another way in which we, uh, another expectation that God has for us is the love that we share for one another. He does say, love each other as I have loved you. And so God has that expectation for us. We talked last week or a couple weeks ago about the idea, uh, well, last week and two weeks ago, about the idea that, uh, that we ought to grow in our knowledge of the scriptures that's what he talked about uh, when he talked about the immaturity and the fact that they, they had not moved beyond these elementary teachings. You know, God expects us to grow. God expects us to mature in our knowledge of God's word. And that then goes to applying it into our daily lives and helping us live holy lives as God calls us to do. It also has to do with our sharing with others the gospel that we have. Jesus says, or, or God says here in Hebrews, I am confident of better things. I am confident of greater things in you. And in our commitment as well, he says, I like what he says. He says there at the very end, he says, don't be lazy. I don't know about you. This may come as a shock to some of you, not to anybody here who's related to me. But I can be lazy from time to time. You know, I can can be lazy. Just sit around. That'd be fine with me. But the writer here says, don't be lazy when it comes to your spirituality. When it comes to your relationship with God. You remember how in the book of Revelation, how Jesus comes into the church at Laodicea. He said, I would that you'd be hot or cold, but you're neither hot nor cold. Therefore, I'd like to spew Spew. I don't know what that word was. Spew you. Puke you. <laughs> Out of my mouth, he said. Because you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And he says to the church at uh Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 says basically you become satisfied in your relationship. We live in a society with little commitment. Commitment doesn't mean a whole lot. Promises don't mean a whole lot. Contracts don't mean a whole lot in our world. But our commitment to God needs to be solid. Our commitment to God needs to be something that we continue to grow in our lives. Don't be lazy. God is expecting us to live up to our commitment to him. So let me ask you this. What's your expectation of yourself spiritually? One of the things that I've kind of found out, it's not an absolute, is that I kind of believe, for the most part, People live up or down to the expectations that others have of them. I've seen parents that kind of had an attitude of, ah, you know, boys will be boys. Teenagers will be teenagers. All teenagers go through this rebellious phase." stage, all teenage, you know. And so, you know, you just have to expect them to do this, and you just have to expect them to do that, and you just have to expect them to do that. You know what? That's what they're going to do. That's what they're going to do. But if you raise your children, and you say, hey, this is what God expects from you. This is what he wants. Are they going to be perfect? No. Is every kid going to? No. You know, just just little things like when we get on the bus and we're going somewhere with 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 the teenagers before they get off the bus. I'll tell them, I said, "Okay, this is what I expect from you. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time they do what's expected of them. What do you expect from yourself? God says, I'm confident of great things in you. We need to be confident that he can help us accomplish those things in our lives. If you're here this morning, and there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.
1: We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org That's d-f-i-e-l-d-c-o-c-dot-o-r-g Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com Or you can call us at 903 If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 930 a.m. for Bible class and 1030 a.m. for worship service. Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.